0: Well, good morning, church. Good morning. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about our relationship circles. You guys remember that? The casual circle, the close circle, the core circle of relationships. Today, we're going to stay in the vein of relationships, but we're going to focus on romantic relationships, which leads me to make this uh, next notice, parents, Those of you that have maybe elementary age children or younger in here with you today, uh, this message is rated PG-13, so um, this would be a good time maybe for you to go and check your kids in at Seeds Kids uh, for more age-appropriate ministry today. Okay, (laughs) praise God. And if you've noticed, uh, Jamie is not here with us today. Uh, It's not because she was afraid of what I might say um, she, she's on the road today. She's doing some ministry and traveling. And uh, Friday, she, she spoke at a women's conference in Missouri, and she stayed over. And this morning, she's a guest worship leader there at that church that hosted the conference. And I've just heard nothing but great things. And so thank, thank you for those of you that have known about that and been praying for her. It's been very good. Now, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come to you today and We want to be the church that has ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us. Uh, Right now, Lord, I just pray that we would, um, no matter where we are on the maturity level of our relationships in our life and romantic relationships, God, I pray that you would do something, uh, work on the inside of us, even if it affirms what we already know, or even if it corrects something that is out of balance in our life and in our thinking. In the direction that we're headed. Lord, I pray for the mothers and the fathers in here of faith, the ones who are mature. Lord, I pray that they would receive and hear what is said today and let it encourage them that they can be a voice of truth to the people that they have influence with. And Lord, I pray for our young people in this room, God. I pray for those, uh, for, for teenagers and young adults, Lord. I pray that you would stir something on the inside of them to not just be um, like the rest of this culture, that they, that we can be in this world, but not of this world. So help us today in Jesus name. Amen. How many of you know that marriage can be a blessing when it's a blessing, right? Let me see your hand, raise your hand high. Some of you are like, just kind of like, yeah, no, no, no. Come on. Marriage is a blessing when it's a blessing, And how many of you know that when marriage is not a blessing, it's not a blessing? Don't raise your hand. (laughs) Don't just look straight ahead. Do not elbow the person next to you. Don't even, don't laugh. Don't smile. Just pretend. I don't know what he's talking about right now. I have no idea. You know, marriage is a blessing when it's a blessing, but it can be painful when it's not a blessing, This is not just my opinion. The scriptures say this too. Uh, If if you look in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 22, it says, the man who finds a wife finds a treasure and he receives favor from the Lord. There are some smart men in here, a few of them, that hooped and hollered and clapped. Good job. Michael, you get some brownie points. (laughs) Casey, Joshua, good job, you guys. Marriage is a blessing when it's a blessing. Amen. But Proverbs 27.5 says, a quarrelsome wife, I'm glad my wife's not here today. She's going to listen to this podcast later. I'm going to be in trouble. A quarrelsome wife is as annoying as a constant dripping on a rainy day. Drip. Drip, drip, drip. Marriage can be a blessing when it's a blessing, but it can be painful when it's not a blessing. And to not, you know, be out of balance here, I want to be an equal gender offender. (laughs) First, J.D., chapter 4, verse 9 says, it's better to pass a kidney stone than to marry a self-centered narcissistic man. That's in the SBIB version. That's the should be in the Bible version. It's not, some of you are like, where is first JD? I'm going to go to the table of contents, find that. So we're going to do this short series called For better or worse. And and how many of you know, this year is going to be the year that we've committed to make every home an altar, right? Every home an altar. That is our marching orders here at Siege Church for 2023. And and so for some of us that might... we might like kind of have a picture of what that looks like For some of us, we, it might be a little bit nebulous and like, what does that mean? What does that look like? Here's what it basically is. It's taking like the stones of our life, the pieces of our life, the, the, the elements in our life, and we're building them together. We're reorienting them and rearranging our life in such a way that it makes an altar for the presence of God to come and dwell in our homes and for God to truly have his way in our homes. It doesn't, We're not going to build an altar. We're not going to make every home an altar by just doing what we've always done. It's going to take some building and reorienting our lives and rearranging things so that the presence of God can come and he can have his way. In 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah brought the wood. Right, Kendra? I'm looking at you, bro. You guys, we got a good song coming your way in the next few weeks. We got to finish it. We got to finish writing it. But Kendra came to us on Monday. He's like, I got this line. I'll bring the wood. You bring the fire. I was like, that is fire. And Elijah, he brought the wood, and the Lord sent the fire. But what had to happen first? Elijah had to build an altar first. And if we want the presence of the living God, if we want the fire from heaven to show up in our lives and consume us, then we first got to build an altar. And if you're making your home an altar, a pretty significant stone in the the altar is your marriage. I mean, it's a pretty significant stone. You, you can try to get all these other things and pieces and, and elements in your life together and in your home to build your altar. But if your marriage is not part of that altar, <laughs> there's something missing. Not just a little thing, a big thing. So today I want to start preparing the ground to, to set this foundational stone of marriage at the base of our altar. The question that I want us to think about and answer today is, is what is marriage? What is marriage? And Some of you might think, well, that's a pretty easy question. That's a softball. And for some of us, other people might be like, well, why is it important to even define what marriage is? You know, marriage is marriage and marriage. Love is love and a woman is a woman. And we could just keep going with these circular definitions that don't mean anything. But I think it's important for us to define what marriage is. Why is that? Because how you view marriage determines how you navigate relationships. This is, this is the main thing right here. How you view marriage determines how you're going to navigate your relationships. I would say that most people today... See, marriage is just like a contract. That's all that it is. It's a contract between two consenting adults. Unless you live in Utah, there might be some more folks, some of y'all get that on the drive home. Or maybe you just didn't think it was funny. Some say, you know what, we'll go to a church and we'll get married in a church. By a pastor, you know, that and then after the ceremony, we will sign the contract, we will, you know, sign the marriage license. And other people are like, No, 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 we don't even need to do that, we don't even need to go to a church and be married by a pastor, we'll just go to the justice of the peace. And then after that, oh, yeah, there they are getting married in a church. And then we'll go to the justice of the peace and they'll just say a few things. It'll be a very short ceremony, and then afterwards we'll sign the contract, we'll sign the marriage license. And then some people are like, Psh, let's fly to Vegas and get married by Elvis. And then afterward, and he pronounces a hugga huggah hugga. <laughs> Husband and wife. That was a terrible Elvis. I did not practice that we'll sign the contract, we'll sign the marriage license. So many would answer the question, what is marriage, simply just by saying, well, it's it's a contract, it's a legal agreement between two consenting adults. But according to Scripture, marriage is way more than just a legal agreement. A good question for us to ask is this, to to get to the answer, what is marriage? A good question for us to ask is, is, how did Jesus define marriage? And if you're a teenager or a young adult in here, really any age, but I want to specifically point this out to our young people. Asking the question, what does Jesus say about this, is one of the most foundational things that can set your life on the trajectory for God's plan for your life. Like, what does Jesus say about it? What does God's word say? And that's what I'm going to to believe as the truth and the foundational things in my life. These are the things that are unshaken. These are the things that are solidified. These are the things that cannot be moved out of my life because I've decided I'm gonna believe God's word. So So let's ask the question, how does Jesus define marriage? In Matthew 19, the Pharisees came to Jesus and the Pharisees were the religious elite of the day. They, they looked godly on the outside and did all the things. They jumped through all the hoops, but they didn't know the presence of God. They didn't have the heart of God, and Jesus did, and they didn't like that, and they didn't like that the people were not following them so much, but they were following Jesus. And so they came to Jesus, and they tried to trap him with a question and ask him about divorce as it related to the law of Moses. And Jesus, in his answer, we see how he defines marriage. He, he defines marriage by the way that, again, God's word defines it. Which should be no shock or surprise to us whatsoever. Because Jesus and the word, they're one and the same. They're synonymous. They're never going to be out of alignment with one another. Now you might, that, that, and that's contrary to, to, to woke theology that's out there today. Because, well, that's, that's not what, I mean, Jesus wouldn't, and Jesus didn't say, and like, no, Jesus was, is never out of agreement with this. He's always in step with and in unity with God's word. And we cannot begin to paint a picture that Jesus is different than God's word or vice versa. And Jesus quotes Genesis chapter 1, and he says this in Matthew 19, verse 4. He says, haven't you read that at the beginning the creator made them male and female? Now, never in my life until now, till this season of life that we find ourselves in in this culture, did I ever feel like I would have to repeat that sentence. And and I'm not saying that to be funny, but it's the creator made them male and female. It's just two options, and we don't get to choose. The Creator chooses, and He's a holy God, and He's sovereign. And, and, and if you struggle with that today, my heart breaks for you, but I want you to know, run to the Father and find your identity and who He is and who He's created you to be, and it's not just what you feel on the inside. You just you go to the Lord. Go to the Word. And find your identity. And so we don't get to choose, but the Creator chooses. And He made them male and female and said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. You guys, marriage is from God. It is by God. It is ordained by God. It's not just a contract. H- have you ever thought about like what a contract is based on? What, what, what is a contract based on? A contract is based on mutual distrust. Think about it. We, we can't just give our word anymore. We have to have a a legal binding agreement. We have to sign a contract. If you sign a contract with someone who's going to work on your house, what is the contractor trying to do and what are you trying to do? Like, What's the goal of signing this contract? Well, each party is trying to protect their rights and limit their liabilities, right? It's like, I want to make sure that you're going to do what you said you would do, and then if you do that, then I'll do what I said I'll do. But if you don't fulfill your end of the bargain, then I'm out, or there's some other kind of consequence. Basically, that's a contract, right? And that's how a lot of people view marriage. And if that's how a lot of people view marriage, then then it stands to reason that... A lot of people would say, well, if that's all that marriage is, if it's just a contract, if it's just a piece of paper, then why do I even need to bother with that? We might as well just live together, which is exactly what's becoming common in today's culture. I mean, it's, it's not abnormal anymore. Pew Research did a study to see the difference between couples, uh, And their research spanned 30 years, three decades. They started in 1990, and the research ended in 2019. And in that time period, the percentage of couples who decided to be married plummeted. It went way down. And the percentage of couples that just decided that they were going to live together, it more than doubled in 30 years. According to the National Center of Family and Marriage Research 80% of Generation Z expects to just cohabitate with their partner. 80%. Like, it's today's norm. Young people think that it's just the natural progression in relational life that we're just going to live together at some point without getting married. And, And really, on paper... I mean, it sounds like a decent plan, right? I mean, if marriage is just a contract, if it's just a piece of paper, then why, just, why jump through all those hoops when you can just split the responsibilities and enjoy the benefits? You can cut your rent in half and share your Netflix account. <laughs> you can save some money. You can split the chores and then share the bed. Sounds like a good plan, right? don't amen to that, please. <laughs> the problem is, is this, that the studies show that cohabitation actually decreases the odds of relational success. It, it, it doesn't work as, th- as well as people think it would work. Even though it you know, it seems to make sense if marriage is just a contract, if it's just a piece of paper, then you'd think that it would make sense, but it doesn't work out. It sounds like a good plan, but it's not working out so well. Why is that? Researchers call this the cohabitation inertia effect. What is that? It's when when people try to slide into commitment rather than Decide into commitment. Hey, how about we live together? Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, I mean, we like each other a lot, and there's a lot of chemistry, and it's cheaper. And so we co-sign on an apartment lease, and we slide into that. And then it's like, well... I mean, we might as well share the same phone plan, right? I mean, it's bundling our phones together. That saves quite a bit of money every month. I mean, and so we slide into that. And then one of you has the great idea one day, hey, let's get a puppy. (laughs) And you may not be fully committed, but you buy into the idea and you get a puppy anyway, and you slide into that. The the problem with this, the problem with sliding into commitment is that it's easy to slide out. And then one day, when you find yourself sliding out of commitment, you go, well, who gets the dog? Or if you're not careful and more serious, it's a child, and now you find yourself fully entangled, but not fully committed. Do you want to see the difference between fully entangled and fully committed? Th- there's been no preparation on this at all. But I, I need, I need three guys. Avery, I need you to come up here. Would you stand right here in the middle, and let's do? Uh, Casey and Tim right there on the front row. All right, Avery, you come here. Tim, you come to this side. Casey, you come to this side. And Avery, I want you to look at me, and I want you to entangle your fingers just like this. And I want you guys, I want you to take an elbow, and and as tightly as you can, I want you to just just like that, Keep your fingers entangled. I want you guys to just pull and just see if you can untangle his fingers. (laughs) Come on, I know you can do it. No, 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 you can't, no, 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 you're, you're, you're starting to commit, you're starting to commit. Just entangle, just entangle. All right, come on, you can do it. I should have picked somebody else, Larry. No, I'm teasing. <laughs> I'm teasing. Do it to me. Go, go away. Come on. This is how it's supposed to work. That's just like that. What kind of fingers do you have? You. I was gonna say. This, I was gonna say, you are the strongest guy in this church. I was just thinking that, and I thought we'll still be able to do it. All right, try it again. I'm, I'm, I'm trying, okay? Okay, they got it. They got it. Everybody give Avery a hand clap for having the strength of Samson. All right, well, no, 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 you guys you guys stay up here. Even though I'm not the strongest guy in the room, I can do this part. All right, that's, that's fully entangled, but this is when you decide. All right, do it now. Come on, pull. (laughs) Okay, I think we proved the point. Somebody's about to get hurt. All right, give these guys a big hand clap. You can be fully entangled, but you're still left weak and vulnerable for attack. But when you're fully committed, then you are strengthened and you can handle far more resistance. You can handle far more resistance and attack from the enemy. When being fully entangled but, but not fully committed, what that does is that it increases the pressure on the relationship. When you're not fully committed, You feel kind of stuck. And the moment you start to feel stuck but not committed, it decreases the odds of success in relationships. And you know what? You don't even have to fully move in together. You can just like kind of do the playhouse thing a few nights of the week. I'll, you know, keep a drawer of my stuff at her place and maybe she has a drawer of her stuff at my place and I keep a toothbrush over there and, Just stay a few nights of the week and, you know, we'll just do that. And even though in our culture today, that might not seem like a very big deal. It might seem perfectly common and normal. But what you're doing is you're pretending and you're practicing marriage. Because you're doing married-like things. But when things don't go well, you break up which is practicing divorce. And so it's no wonder that later on when you get married and you just see it as a contractual agreement, and if things don't get, go well for you, you just grab your drawer of stuff and you go one way and then they go the other way. It's one of the reasons why, why marriages are failing today. I'm not saying this to be judgmental. I'm saying this because how you view marriage determines how you're going to navigate relationships. And I'm saying this because I want you to have a strong marriage in, in the stone of, of the altar of your home where the presence of God can come and dwell. And if you're a single person in here, and, and, and if you're a young person that you're like, someday I'm going to get married, or, I you know, I am interested in the opposite sex, and I'd like to go down that that direction someday, then you need to have this solidified in your heart here that how you view marriage determines how you navigate relationships. And that even now, as a teenager or as a young adult, you're going to go ahead and... and Take this, this stone of your marriage, and you're going to go ahead and begin to build the altar of your life with it now. And you don't, you don't, you're not going to wait till later, and you're not going to do things to defile yourself, but you're going to keep this holy now. See, a, a Christian marriage is not just a contract, it's a covenant. contract is based on mutual distrust, but a covenant is based on mutual commitment before a holy God. In the scriptures, the Hebrew word that's translated as covenant is the word bereath, which means to cut or a cutting, which means there's a shedding of blood, right? Jesus shed his blood for the new covenant so that our sins would be forgiven and so that we could enter into relationship with the holy God. Praise God, right? Thank you, God, for that covenant. I'll give you a couple other examples here. In the context of brotherhood and deep friendship in the Bible, in the Old Testament, the way that they would cut covenant with one another is they would take a bull and they would cut the bull in half lengthways. And then so that bull would be laid out on the ground. And then they, the two people making the covenant together, they would walk through the middle of that bull, like in an infinity pattern, seven times. And they would say, if I break this covenant, if I break my word to you, may what has been done to this bull be done to me. That's total commitment. That's not, I'll get my drawer of stuff. That's all in. In the context of marriage, uh, and this is so not our culture, but at an Old Testament Hebrew wedding, you'd have all these People, the family, friends, a big party of people celebrating this couple. You have the virgin bride and the virgin groom stand before the priest, make their vows. And you know what they would do next? They would go into the hapa. The hapa picture, it's, it's a wedding chamber. Picture four posts, and there's, and there's drapes all around it. And so you have like this temporary structure, and they would go into the Huppah, where I like to call it the huppa hubba, and um, that's where they would. That's where they would consummate the marriage. Uh, a more uh, known histor- historical term was uh, it was called the consummation station. But uh, now don't write that in your notes. Some some of you, I saw you, oh, okay it, it, I told you p g thirteen anyway, some of you like I didn't think we were coming to a comedy show, but during during consummation, of course, there's a shedding of blood, right between between virgins, there's a shedding of blood one one shedding of blood is the more obvious one that we can think of, and this is. Uh, this is a freebie, this one's not in my notes, but you know the again, PG 13, okay? All right. In, in a man's semen carries his bloodline. So you actually you do, it's not just one one part of the blood represented there in the consummation of this marriage. And so what they would do is they would take some of that blood and put it on a clean cloth and they would come out of the huppa and they would show everyone. That's right, not our culture, right? I see some faces like, what? But in this culture, this was normal and it was good and everybody would cheer and celebrate because these two had made a covenant together. And and, and it was like they'd made this, this covenant together And they're cheering because now what God has joined together, let no man separate. The two had become one. And it's a holy and righteous and covenantal commitment before God. Hubba hubba. (laughs) Speaking of sex, since you brought it up. um, (laughs) Studies show... Studies show that men think about sex about once every seven seconds. So I did the math on that, and about that's 4, 514 times an hour. And some of you are going, yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. No, it's not right. I mean, the math is right, but it, that's, it's not true. It's not a fact. <laughs> yeah. No, but here's what is true. Studies show on, the average man thinks about sex 19 times a day. 19 times a day. So then that, that begs to, to question, like, well, how often do women think about sex? And in this study, this show it shows that women, on average, think about sex 10 times a day. Now, what they're thinking about sex 10 times a day, I don't know. Some of them might be thinking, I don't want to have sex. I don't know. But men think about it 19 times a day. Women think about it 10 times a day. Which, which then leads to the next question. What else are women thinking about? <laughs> food. Yeah. Women think about food 15 times a day. <laughs> so if you're tracking with me and you just want to see where everything ranks. <laughs> women think about food 15 times a day. Men think about Sex, 19 times a day. Men think about sex more than women think about food and sex. Anyway. And it raises this incredibly important question. How do we live with sexual integrity in a culture of sexual infidelity? Well, it depends on how you define marriage. Because how you define marriage, how you view marriage, not only uh, determines how you navigate relationships, but it determines how you navigate sex. What does God's word say about marriage? Right? Because that's what we keep coming back to. It tells us that marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman for life. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4 says, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. So if you are not married, you should still honor the covenant of marriage, right? Marriage should be honored by all. So if you're not married, you still honor the covenant of marriage. If you are married, certainly you honor the covenant of marriage. And our sexual lives should be kept pure and undefiled. So scripture teaches us that some of you are like, are, are we about to get some nuts and bolts? No. Uh, like I said, PG-13, not NC-17. Scripture teaches us that the only kind of God-honoring sex is within the covenant of marriage now you can fill in whatever blanks you want to from there but that's the only kind of god honoring sex it's within the covenant of marriage now some of the unmarried people in the room might be asking well so if we're dating what can we do and what can't we do yeah i hear some giggles <laughs> what what can we get away with what can't we get away with you know what's allowed and what's not allowed where's the line And if that's the question that you're asking, then you're going to be left with a very short list. Very short list. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, and he says, Among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. Well, how come? Why? It's fun. I like it. Because... God's gift of sex it's holy and it's righteous and it's pure and it, and it's intended and reserved for the intimacy of a covenant marriage between a man and a woman and there shouldn't be a hint of sexual immorality so what does that mean like what's what's included in all that what what would be out of balance again we're not, it's just PG13 but overarching things here. I mean, I don't care about the details, but I care about the heart of God. And so when we look at the scriptures, we see clearly the heart of God on this issue. And so what's out of balance? Adultery, premarital sexual activity, pornography, basically anything that puts sex and makes sex into an idol above God. I realize that some of you might be thinking, J.D., this is a little uncomfortable. Like, do we really have to talk about this in church? I mean, do you have to really spell it out for us like this? I mean, we all know that these things are wrong. We already know this stuff already. I mean, can't we just move on, talk about something else? No, we can't. We, we can't because we don't know this stuff already. It's obvious. Look at our culture. Look at the American church. Look at some of the leaders in the American church. If that were the case, if we already knew all this stuff already, then, then, then 80% of Gen Z wouldn't think that this was normal, to cohabitate and shack up before getting married. I would dare say that one of the reasons that we are where we are today is in our godless, hedonistic, self-centered, self-gratifying culture It's because the church has stayed silent. we've, We've abdicated our voice in the land. We've allowed sexual immorality into the church and into our hearts and into our habits. And we know it's wrong, but instead of being in the world, we've become of the world. And when you give sexual immorality a couch to sleep on in your life, what it does is it will take away your voice to live out and speak out God's truth. It'll just, it'll take you. It'll take your voice. It'll take you, rob you of your confidence. I mean, if you're living with sexual immorality in your life, like, like, what, what, Some of you are like thinking, well, the only thing worse than that I can think of is to be a hypocrite. So I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. You don't want to be a hypocrite. You don't want to say one thing, but behind closed doors or on your phone, be doing another thing. So you have no voice. When Paul wrote that letter to the Ephesians and he said, Among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. He was addressing the church in Ephesus, not the city of Ephesus. Why would Paul talk about this in church? Because there was a spiritual stronghold of sexual immorality in the region of Ephesus over that area. And Paul knew that if sexual immorality could get a foothold into the church, then it would rob believers of their confidence in Christ, their identity in Christ, and what God has called them to do, their works in Christ. That's what sin does. It robs you of your confidence. It shackles you and cripples you. So if Paul could talk about it in church, I think maybe... You know, it, it, if Paul could talk about it in church and the Holy Spirit saw to it that it got canonized as part of Holy Scripture, then I think more churches ought to be talking about it too. And not we don't just need to talk about it. We actually need to rid ourselves of sexual immorality because there is a spiritual stronghold of sexual perversion that's growing in America. And we can't let it into the church. You know what's sexually immoral and unholy? That performance last Sunday night from Sam Smith and Kim Petras. Kim, formerly known as Tim. I don't know if any of you guys knew that or not. I didn't see it live, but... I found out about it in the middle of the week. In front of an audience of 12.4 million viewers, they performed a song that was unholy. Literally, that was the title of the song, Unholy. And only God knows how many more times How many more people saw it as it was passed around on social media this last week like a hot potato? I saw it all over the place. Listen, I'm not going to be graphic about this, but in their performance, the scene was hell. And I don't mean like, I'm not saying that as a descriptive word of how bad it looked like. Man, it looked like hell. No, that was the set. The set was supposed to be the place of hell. And you've got fireballs, pyrotechnics blowing up fireballs from the stage. And Sam Smith is dressed as Satan. And all around him, worshiping Satan, were transgender demons. And then Kim Petras was further back, and she was in, in, in a cage. So, I mean, so that's like actually good theology right there. Fear in hell. Good job, Sam Smith, you got that right. And the cage was guarded also by transgender demons. And that's just, I mean, which is very fitting, because demons don't, are not they're non-binary. Demons are, don't have a sex. You ever wonder why, like, there's such a war on this issue in our culture? Like, just connect those dots. Demons aren't trying to help people who they really are. They're trying to help them be like them. And so you've got this, this picture of satanic worship. And do you know what that song Unholy is about? I, I, I'm not even sure if I'd ever heard it before, and I probably have out and about. It sounded catchy. It sounded like, man, that's, that's a cool song. But when you listen to the lyrics and you read the lyrics, you realize that this song is the actual glorification of adultery. It doesn't, it's not just talking about adul- adultery. No, it's like putting adultery on a pedestal. And what that says to me is, I'm going to spit in the face of God. We're going to defile the institution of marriage that God created. It's by him, it's from him, it's ordained by him. And by glorifying adultery, we're going to spit in the face of God. And we're not even going to be sneaky about it. I'm going to dress up like the devil. Earlier in the show, I found this out just last night, uh, earlier in the show before they did that performance, the two of them won the award for best pop duo performance for that song. And Kim gave the acceptance speech and said that Sam wanted her, sorry, Sam wanted Kim, formerly known as Tim, to give the acceptance speech because they were the first transgender woman to win that award. And when she said that, what happened next disturbed me just as much, if not more, than the performance itself. When those words came out of her mouth, the room erupted in a standing ovation. And the camera cut to this celebrity and to that celebrity. And they are cheering and their smiles on their face. it breaks my heart. And I'm not mad at those people. I'm broken for those people. I'm mad at the devil. That's who I'm mad at. There's a spiritual stronghold of sexual perversion in America. Change my mind. Some of you might be sitting here thinking, well, Jada, you just need to calm down over these culture wars. These aren't culture wars. These are kingdom wars. The kingdom of darkness versus the kingdom of light. Thankfully, I know who wins. But we still have to fight. And our wrestle, Ephesians 6, is not with flesh and blood, it's a spiritual fight. And we fight it on our knees in prayer, and we fight it with love and truth. the world is going to do what the world is going to do but we cannot let this stuff or even just the seeds of it to enter into our hearts and on our homes and into the church I don't have this scripture up here but I'm going to read to you second Corinthians chapter 6 verse 14. in here somewhere. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Beliar? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are The temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Guys, I'm reading from the New Testament. And the Lord says, then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me says the lord almighty the lord said to me 2 weeks ago and it wasn't it wasn't just something he said to me but it was for the church he said you say you want my presence you say that you want me to send the fire but you won't even build an altar. And he didn't say it with a heart of condemnation or a voice of condemnation. He said it with a challenge. Like, come on, let's just do it. Build an altar to me. I want to send my presence. I want to send my fire. I want to come. Later today, we're going to be watching the Super Bowl. And I, to be honest with you guys, I don't even care. And I like football. And it's not a cause. It's the Chiefs and the Eagles. I just don't care. I want the presence of God more than I want to be entertained. But it's okay. It's okay to watch the game. It's all right to have fun. There's nothing wrong with that. But I want to challenge you. That when it comes to the halftime show, if it gets raunchy, and it's likely that it will, just shut the TV off for 10 minutes. I don't want to miss anything. You won't be. You won't be missing anything that will bring any kind of value to your life whatsoever. It won't bring value to your life in this realm, and it won't bring value to your life in the spiritual realm. It won't. Just shut the TV off for 10 minutes. Don't put it on mute and just have it still on the screen. Because that's not going to help. Shut it off and just pick up your phone and go, Siri, set a timer for 10 minutes. And then you won't miss the rest of the stuff, okay? Okay. But let's model for our children that we are not of the world. We're just in the world, but we're not of the world. Let's model for our children and say, we're not going to watch this for the next 10 minutes because we have decided that we're going to make our home an altar. And light and darkness do not exist in the same place. They cannot mix. Right? Isn't that what we just read? What fellowship has light with darkness? I got a bunch of more notes here we're just not going to get to, and that's all right. There's a revival happening right now at Asbury University Seminary right outside of Lexington. I've been seeing reports about it. I've known people that have driven there. I think I might go tomorrow. And and I see the stuff on the, the pictures and the videos, and all I can think of is, God, why there and not here? And I know the answer. I know the answer. Because they're hungry. They're hungry for the presence of God. They're desperate for a move of God. They desire what God wants more than they desire what they want. Like I said, uh, seriously, the, the message that I have prepared today is not going to be finished today. I have like half of what we did. I have half more to go. But that's okay My notes are good, the message is good, all that's good, we need that, but I don't care about the notes or the message if we don't have the presence. I don't want to just jump through the hoops and go through the motions and walk out of here and not be stirred to build an altar in my heart and in my home. You know what? It's possible to get all of this right on the outside, but on the inside, be absolutely bankrupt. Can I read you another? Can I read you another scripture? It's not. If you got your Bible, flip over to Revelation chapter three. We're wrapping it up. Don't worry. Beans won't burn. Revelation 3, verse 14, the, these are the, the letters to the churches. These are the words of Jesus to the seven churches. And in verse 14, Jesus sends a, a message to the church in Laodicea. In verse 15, he says, I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold. Oh, would that you were either cold or hot. <laughs> it's all right. Some people misunderstand this passage and they're like, well, Jesus would just rather be us completely degenerate or completely on fire for him, one or the other, but not lukewarm. You're completely missing uh, the context of this passage. There's usefulness in cold water. It's useful, right? It's refreshing. On a hot day, you want to jump into it and cool off. And you want to drink it, clean cold water. And if you're washing a load of darks, you need cold water. And then hot water is incredibly useful as well. Because you want to wash with it. And you don't want to take a cold shower. You want to take a warm shower. And you want to cook with boiling hot water. And Jesus says, you're not useful. You're lukewarm. Just picture the water during this time period traveling miles and miles away on aqueducts. And by the time it reaches from the the water source to the city of Laodicea, think how disgusting that water would be. And lukewarm water. And we're not talking about like lukewarm that we have today out of the tap. That's doable. We're talking about like first century lukewarm water. Disgusting. And Jesus said, because you're lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich. I've prospered. I need nothing, not realizing. See, I'm rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. I've got it all worked out here on the outside. Looking good, guys. Got it from here, Lord. I'll take it. And Jesus said, you don't realize that you are wretched. You are pitiable. You're poor, blind, and naked. I love what he says next. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold. Not the gold of this world, but buy gold from me, from the realm of eternity that has been refined by fire, so that you truly may be rich. And buy from me white garments so that you may clothe yourself. And the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you actually can see. They were blind and they didn't know it. They were naked and they didn't know it. They were poor and they didn't know it because everything out on the outside, out here, looked great. It was polished. It was prosperous. But on the inside, they were bankrupt. And Jesus says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. This is a letter to the church. Be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and, and and eat with him, and he with me. That's good news. I want to go to dinner with Jesus. And I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. And as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear to let him hear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We say we want revival in the land, we say we want an outpouring of the Spirit in Middle Tennessee but the revival must first come to your heart and to your home and to this church ever before we will see it in the land. If you want to know the key to seeing an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in your heart, uh, in your home, and in this church, it's real simple. It's not better programs, It's not better facilities. It's not a better location, like where there's more population than Rockvale. It's not better sound and lights. It's not any of that stuff. The key to seeing outpouring of the Holy Spirit is real simple. I'll say it in one sentence God comes where He is wanted. Let that sink in. Why is Asbury singing out, pouring of the Holy Spirit? Why is Asbury on fire right now? God comes where he's wanted. Hunger is the secret. When a church gets hungry, God shows up. I don't even know how to close this service today. As I was just thinking about all this stuff last night in my office at home. I just began to weep before the Lord. Reading that passage in Revelation, thinking about that. I said, God, I, I know we're supposed to be talking about marriage relationships and all that, and that's good, and, but what good is your marriage without the presence of God? What good is your, your next bonus or raise without the presence of God? What good is your kids getting all the good grades and getting the, the starting position on the team without the presence of God? What good is the, is the vacation or the new car without the presence of God? Jesus, I just want you. We want you.